What would it take to convince you that someone had risen from the dead? Would you be happy with one of those sort of grainy videos that you sometimes see on YouTube and things like that? What about photographs? What about if it had its own entry on Wikipedia? You know, this person has been resurrected. Would you have to see it for yourself? And even then, could you be sure? What if it happened at a time and a place where you couldn't be there? How could you possibly know if it had happened or not? Some people start with the proposition that such an event is absolutely impossible. Therefore, whatever the evidence, however great the evidence is, it would never be enough. I imagine if a man rose from the dead in front of someone like Richard Dawkins, I'm sure he'd tell you that he was hallucinating. There is nothing that you could do to prove to someone like that in a way that this was true, because their beliefs that they already have reject any evidence that you give them. That's to start with a totally closed-minded position. Even though I'm sure that's not what they would say if you talked to them and asked them. Other people are at the opposite end of the spectrum, aren't they? They're always believing in those sorts of things. Uh, they're the people who have a photo of a Loch Ness monster uh, as their screensaver on their phone. They're the people who think that the Men in Black movie about aliens was a documentary. They're very quick to believe that sort of person, but they're also very quick to be disappointed when those things are disproven. They don't take much convincing, but they do take quite a lot of consoling when all of their things that they believe have gone wrong. So how about you this morning? What would it take to convince you that someone rose from the dead? And if you already do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then listen in and think about uh, how certain our faith is in that, uh, that Jesus has risen from the dead. I can tell you that I haven't always believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I can remember hearing about it for the first time when I was about seven, and I was a bit surprised that was how the story ended. I'd heard lots about Jesus dying on the cross, but I didn't really know what happened afterwards. I wasn't sure what to make of it. I was uh, at school, one of those uh, sort of geeky science kids. Uh, some of you might have guessed this. But as that sort of person, I believe that people didn't just rise from the dead. That's not what happens in science, is it? I mean, I don't know if you caught in the news this week, there was a pig um, that they managed to get a tiny part of its brain working uh, several hours after it died. But it's not really, they call it things like the zombie pig and all sorts of things like that. But it's not really a zombie pig. It's a tiny little part of its brain that's working. Even now, science is nowhere close to raising someone from the dead. With that pig, it's like, if you, you know, you get a car that's a write-off. You get the radio to work again. It doesn't mean the car is now working. So I think is, I believe that it still is humanly uh, impossible for somebody to raise, be raised from the dead. But I'm also convinced that it happened. I believe that the impossible took place. So what did it take to convince me? Well, I'm going to tell you some of the reasons this morning why I'm convinced that Jesus died and rose again about 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday. And the first thing is I'm convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because the Gospels are reliable. We had a reading just before from one of the four Gospels. Uh, if you didn't know, there are four of them. All of them written by different people associated with Jesus. Matthew and John were two of the twelve disciples who followed Jesus around for three years. Mark is believed to be the one who wrote down the account of Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. Luke was a doctor who followed around a man called Paul a few years later and sort of collected accounts of Jesus' life. 
And there are a few reasons why I'm convinced that these accounts are accurate accounts of what happened. The first reason is that they're consistent. They're consistent. Why don't you imagine for a second that you're a policeman taking witness statements of a uh, sightings of an escaped criminal. Several people say that they've seen him. What do you look for in their accounts? Well, you look for consistency, don't you? You want the stories of the witnesses to match up. And if it's consistent, it's more likely that their statements are true if they're saying similar things. Now, it's obvious from even a glance, if you read Matthew, Mark and Luke, that actually they're very similar. Uh, They follow a very similar pattern. In fact, in places, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's word for word. They all follow this this sort of similar account of Jesus' life. Either because there was a pre-existing way that the story had been told, that they all sort of wrote their own version of, or because Matthew and Luke based theirs on Peter's account uh, of Jesus. Peter was with Jesus at points where Matthew wasn't. So it makes sense that they would sort of borrow from Peter's account. Either way, they are consistent between them. And this morning, we're looking at one of the earliest, in fact, the earliest, Mark's Gospel. People have spent 2,000 years looking for contradictions between Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, and they haven't found any. And believe me, people have looked for the, between those accounts. So even though they're very similar... They are different and they're not contradictory. There aren't contradictions there. So those are the Matthew, Mark, Luke. They're quite similar, but John does his own thing. His gospel is very different, but again, his accounts are consistent. Even though he tells very different stories, they fit into the frameworks of the other gospels. And you'd expect him to tell different stories, wouldn't you? You've been around Jesus for three years. I imagine that he'd done lots more things. I mean, John tells us he's done lots more things that he didn't write down. But they're still consistent with what we're told in the other Gospels as well, even though the stories are very, very different. So they're consistent. But consistency was not enough to convince me. The other thing that we see with the Gospels is that they are inconsistent. They're inconsistent. Bear with me if you're panicking for a second. What I mean by that is there is the potential, isn't there, with consistent accounts that they are too consistent. Go back to our criminal sighting. If all the witnesses say exactly the same, like from a script, the policeman won't believe them, will he? They believe that they've got together and they've made it up together. It's a hoax. They've practiced their answers beforehand. But although there are no contradictions in the Gospels, there are plenty of inconsistencies, things that on the surface of things look different. So let me read to you the same account that we've got in Mark, in Matthew. So you keep Mark open... I'll read you Matthew and sort of spot the difference as we go through. When it was evening, there came a rich man, not told in the other one that this guy's rich, from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given. Do you notice there there's no mention of the centurion, is there, that Pilate went and called? And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen, a clean linen shroud and laid it in, a new, in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Extra detail of them sitting opposite, just not around. Then in Matthew, we get a whole section on the guards. 
And it goes back to where it is in Mark. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. No mention of Salome. And behold, there was a great earthquake. No mention of that either. Um, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now Mark would get an angel, but he's just called a young man in white. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Um, But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. That's a little bit extra. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. No mention of joy in the other one. And ran to tell his disciples. Well, in the first one, we're told that they kept quiet. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Uh, So here Jesus meets them. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers in Galilee. There they will see me. So do you see, just between two accounts, there are quite a lot of inconsistencies. So when you've got an angel, when you've got uh, uh, the stone being rolled away as they get there almost. Most of these are quite simple, aren't they, to, to understand. So no mention of Salome. Or perhaps Matthew didn't know Salome was there. In another gospel, she's called Joanne. Uh, so it could be somebody else, or it could be Salome. Earthquake, well, Mark just didn't mention it. It doesn't need to be included in the account. The closest you get to a contradiction is that on, uh, in Matthew's account, the angel sits on top of the stone, and in Mark, they were inside the tomb. But it's not a contradiction, because if you think about it, it's just different time periods, isn't it? So they started off on top, and then they went inside. So, for example, go back to the policeman. If he's getting witness statements, one person says, I saw the criminal sat on a bench. The other one says, well, I saw him walking on the pavement. That's not a contradiction. They're just seeing things at different times, aren't they? And mentioning things from different times. The criminal had a hat on. The criminal didn't have a hat on. Okay, it looks like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's possible the criminal took his hat off. The criminal was wearing a blue badge. No mention of a blue badge from the other person. Well, maybe one of the witnesses couldn't see they're wearing a blue badge because they were seeing his back. They look like inconsistencies, and they are inconsistencies, but it's because different people are telling the story. They're telling what they saw and what they heard. My question is, if you were making this up, why would you add these? Why would you put them in? It would make no sense. Matthew was telling it as he found it. So was Mark, so was John, so was Luke. All of them had access to different information, All of them are seeing things from different angles. So this is what you'd expect from a real-life event. So if I went to an evening out, my account of the evening might be quite different from your account of the evening, even if you were there at the same time. If we were at a Michael Bublé concert, you might focus on the music and the amazing singing. I might focus on how many tiles there are on the ceiling or exactly what time it started and finished. Same evening different viewpoints. This inconsistency smacks of reality if there's no contradiction. And there are no contradictions here, but there are inconsistencies because people are seeing things from different angles. So I believe that the Gospels are true 
because they're consistent, they're also inconsistent, which smacks of them actually not being made up. Last reason why, all the Gospels portray the disciples as idiots. All the Gospels portray the disciples as idiots. If you read through the Gospels, you find out that they're hot-headed, dim-witted, and cowardly, really. If you look in this passage, they're totally absent, aren't they? Who organises the burial? Some guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Notice that he's named specifically, so you can go and check it out. The disciples here have fled and abandoned Jesus. It's not exactly great PR for the early church. If the early church was making this up, then actually they sound terrible, don't they? Who goes to visit the tomb? Mary, Mary and Salome. Not the disciples. Three women who were at best bit parts in the Gospels. And again, the disciples are nowhere. If the early church were going to write a work of fiction, I'm sure that they would have cast themselves here in this story, wouldn't they? They would have been the ones at the tomb. I'm sure they would have been the brave ones. But why would the leaders of the church write gospels that made themselves look stupid and cowardly? So if you compare the Bible, for example, with the Quran, in the Quran, nobody does anything wrong. When you read it through, it sort of comes across... Uh, uh, with lots of the Bible stories, but with all the scandalous bits missing. It's a sort of whitewash of history. But there's no whitewash with the Bible. The disciples here have portrayed warts and all. Now, there are many other angles that we could take to look at why the Gospels are reliable, but there are three big reasons why I think that they are. But hopefully that should be enough to convince you that as we look at this text now, we have a reliable account of what happened 2,000 years ago. If you're worried that it's changed over the past 2,000 years, we'll come to that bit at the end. But what does the text itself tell us about Jesus' resurrection? Well, I'm convinced Jesus rose from the dead because Mark tells us Jesus really did die. Um, if you, uh, I just glanced down at uh, 15, 42 to 47. You'll see actually there there's some quite gruesome uh, details. Let me... Uh, read it to you. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking it down with him, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Do you notice there are some, uh, some things here? Beware, there's going to be some quite gruesome details, but... To start with, Mark is surprised and expresses the surprise of the characters that Jesus died so quickly. This is why I'm convinced Mark is telling us that Jesus really did die. Now, depending on the health of a victim, crucifixion could take several days to kill someone. Death normally occurred from suffocation and exhaustion due to the angle that they were put on the cross. The victim would have to push themselves forward to be able to breathe. That was basically the idea. So when your arms or your legs gave way, you'd actually quickly die. Jesus died after just six hours. 
However, the Gospels tell us that before he was crucified, he was severely beaten with whips containing metal and bone before he was crucified. He probably already lost quite a lot of blood by the time that he reaches the cross. But the short death prompts Pilate to take the extra step of summoning the centurion in charge to confirm that he really had died. What it actually means is that we have an extra check in place that Jesus really was dead. Because Pilate goes and gets someone to go and confirm that Jesus is dead. Nobody's taking anybody's word for it. Now centurions were trained killers. And if he told Pilate uh, that Jesus was dead, he was dead. The Romans were very efficient killers. And actually crucifixion wasn't as rare uh, as it became later on actually. Quite a lot of people in Jerusalem in the previous years have been crucified. The centurion had likely seen many crucifixions. So he knew what he was talking about. And think about it from the centurion's point of view. If if Pilate found out that this wasn't the case, he would have been in big trouble. Probably his own life was in danger. So Jesus really was dead. The idea that Jesus just fainted on the cross makes no sense. The soldiers would deal with people who fainted as part of their job. They knew the difference. The other reason that I think it shows us quite clearly that Jesus is dead is that they prepared the body for burial. Jesus was put in a linen shroud. Now, that process, it gives us a sort of summary here in Mark, but it would have involved anointing Jesus' body with special ointments and spices. That's what the women are going to go carry on doing on Sunday morning. The ointments and spices were there to stop the body from smelling as the body decomposed. Now, again, this is a bit different from what we do with with dead bodies. In this period in history, in in Jewish uh, history, what would happen is that the the bones of a body would be removed later after the body had decomposed and put in something called an ossuary. So it's sort of like to save space within the tomb. You sometimes find it in the news that they found ossuaries in in Jerusalem with people's names on. uh, And they always get quite excited about them. But it basically meant that they had to leave the body to decompose before they could do that with the bones. So they need to make sure that it didn't smell too bad, so they would put spices and and ointments on it. And then they were reburied later on to save space. But what what we see by this, though, is that the body had been prepared. The body had been covered in spices and ointments. And during this process, it's virtually inconceivable that a living person would go unnoticed. If somebody was putting ointments and spices all over someone's body, the idea that they wouldn't be able to tell that they were alive is almost inconceivable. At this period, the body would be handled, wouldn't it, by Joseph of Arimathea, by other people who were helping. So, again, it points us to the fact that Jesus really was dead. There was another opportunity for them to find out that Jesus was alive. But actually, it all confirms that Jesus was dead. And then finally, he shows us that Jesus really was dead, because he shows us that it really was Jesus' tomb that they found. So occasionally through history, there's been a sort of crazy theory that appears every so often, that the women go to the wrong tomb. Uh, so they sort of get there, and they, say, oh, they sort of take the angel's words in half and say, he is not here. Sort of saying, oh, he's in a different tomb somewhere else. But actually, do you notice, Mark makes really clear that the women saw where he was buried and the women themselves come to the tomb the day after so the same people who see where he's buried the same people who've seen him die are the people who come back so it's not that they go to the wrong tomb so mark wants to make it really clear that he really was dead 
Because if Jesus didn't die, there's no raising from the dead, is there? But what about the rising from the dead? What about the resurrection? Well, actually, Mark gives us the briefest accounts of the four Gospels. Read with me verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going on before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The next reason why I think Jesus is, uh, that uh, Jesus really did rise from the dead is because Mark gives us eyewitnesses that are real rather than ideal. That's what we see in verses 1 to 8. The witnesses he gives us to the resurrection are Mary, Mary and Salome. They were the women who saw that he was buried, but other than that, they're actually quite insignificant in the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, well actually in Mark's Gospel, it's her first mention. Uh, Often linked with a prostitute, in the Gospels called Mary, but there's no evidence for that. We just know that she was someone that Jesus knew and at some point had driven seven demons out of her. She's mentioned in the other Gospels, but only in passing. She's not a major character. The second person is Mary, the mother of Joseph and James. Again, rarely mentioned. Uh, some think it's Jesus' mother Mary, but that would be a bit of a strange way of putting it um, when actually she's named as his mother elsewhere. And then Salome, only mentioned here in any Gospel. There's all sorts of traditions about her, but we don't know anything for certain. The witnesses here are nobodies. And in their culture, they were worse than nobodies. As women, they were considered unreliable witnesses. So the testimony of a woman was worth next to nothing in Jesus' day. One man's testimony in court could overrule any number of women's testimony. So back to our policeman. 20 women say he went left. One man said he went right. Where's the policeman go? He looks right. Mark gives us real witnesses, not made-up ideal witnesses. And again, if you were making this up, if you were Mark just writing this as a work of fiction, you wouldn't have put these women as your witnesses. The fact that Mark does smacks of authenticity, smacks of the fact that it's true. And the other thing that convinces me that Jesus rose from the dead is because Mark ends at verse 8, and that's okay. Mark ends at verse 8. And that's okay. So you notice there's quite an abrupt ending, uh, really, to Mark's Gospel at verse 8. We've got a bit extra, but you'll notice in your Bibles it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 uh, to 20. Other Gospels do go further, but Mark stops here with the empty tomb and the angel. For Mark, what he said is enough. Now, some people have been embarrassed by this over the years. And someone very early on added on an ending to Mark's gospel along the lines of the one that we got here and sort of linking together what the other gospels had said about Jesus rising from the dead. But also early on, someone wrote a shorter ending as well. 
So there's a shorter ending of Mark that just sort of sums up the story at the end and, and tells you that Jesus rose from the dead. So actually there are three possible endings with Mark. Either it ends at verse 8, or we've got the longer ending, or we've got the shorter ending. The thing is though, that actually we can trace each of these and when they appeared. You can see in different traditions that some uh, places carried on with a short ending, some places carried on with a, a long ending. But we can sort of map where they came in. Every year, more and more fragments are found of the Gospels. And we can map where they fit into the story of a text. So every year, what we actually do is get closer and closer to the original, uh, rather than further and further away. Sometimes you get the idea that actually, oh yeah, it's been translated and retranslated. No, actually, we're closer now to the original text than we were a hundred years ago. But everything that we've discovered so far points us to the fact that the earliest ending is at verse 8. It just stops uh, there. Mark doesn't need or doesn't feel the need to put the resurrection appearances in. Why? Well, partly because he's shown us that it's happening just as Jesus said. Jesus has been saying all the way through his gospel that he would die and three days later he would rise again. So on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The same is, uh, is there again in Mark 9, 31 and Mark 10, 33 to 34. And then finally, when alone with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, Mark 14, 27 and 28, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Well, what does the angel say to the women? He's going before you to Galilee. The plan is still on. It's all happening exactly as Jesus said, right down to the details of him, where he's going to meet them. We know what's happened because the angel has told us he is risen. It's not just that he's missing. So far from being flashy and loud, Mark keeps it simple. If you read through Mark's Gospel, that's sort of his style. It's obvious that the story extends further. The women said nothing, but not for long. I mean, after all, Mark knows about it, doesn't he? So they can't have kept quiet for so long. But at that point in the story, he stops. So why does he leave us with the women leaving in fear? Well, actually, it's to do with how he's been writing his whole gospel. We've just sort of come in at the end of it, haven't he? Haven't we? But he's been lifting this idea up in, in the gospel all the way through. The conclusion of a book often doesn't make sense, does it, if you haven't read the whole. And Mark is telling us a particular way of, of the story that, that affects how he writes his gospel. So what's Mark been telling us about fear? Well, let me just give you two examples. Mark 4.40. Again, it's on the back of your sheets. He said to them, why are you so afraid? This is on the boat. Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then Mark 5, 36. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. That's when his little daughter had died. Fear and faith are put side by side again and again and again in Mark's gospel. So when Mark finishes with fear and trembling, you as the reader are left thinking, where's the faith? If it's always side by side in Mark, well, 
Where is the faith gone? It's a challenge to the reader, really. Will you believe? Will you have faith? The next part of the story lies with us. What will we do with Jesus' resurrection? Will we react like the women in fear or in faith? So I'll finish where I started, where Mark wants us to finish. This is what he's really leaving us with. Where is the faith? What would it take to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead? We've seen that the Gospels are reliable accounts of what happened. We've seen that Mark's Gospel clearly shows us that Jesus both predicted his death and resurrection and showed us that it happened. What would it take for you to believe? And it's a serious question, isn't it, this morning? Do you need more than what Mark gives you? If you do, how much more before you'd believe? Are you actually in danger of being in that position where no matter how much evidence you get, you wouldn't believe? If you permit me to speak frankly for a moment, I suspect that many of us, when we demand evidence, it's actually an excuse. We say we want more evidence when actually we think that no amount of evidence would actually convince us. We've already made up our minds. To the point that if Jesus came and stood here this morning, we'd still in our hearts believe that it was a trick. God has given us the evidence that he deems enough for those who want to find out the truth. It may be not as much as some of us would want, but how much is reasonable? We have documents from the time. We have records of people who claim to see this firsthand and were prepared to be executed rather than renounce their claim. We have 2,000 years of people examining these texts and trying to find contradictions. We have millions of people over the world who claim to have been personally affected by these truths. Men and women, old and young, rich and poor, from scientists to shell stackers, from doctors to rock stars, black and white and all shades in between. If this is a delusion of some claim, then it's almost the most universal delusion you could find. Because it affects people from all backgrounds. No matter what intelligence or or belief they had before. So what would it take you to convince you that someone rose from the dead? Well, if you're still not convinced, well, I'm going to suggest a few things to you in a few moments' time that would help you think a bit more about how we know that Jesus rose from the dead. But before we do that, we're going to sing our last song. It's an Easter one, but it's quite a new one. We're not alone for Christ is here, Emmanuel our God come near.